Josh McDowell. Allow me to attempt telling you his life story and over 50 years of ministry in the next 90 seconds. Josh did not grow up with a strong Christian faith. In fact, as a university student, Josh set out to disprove Christianity altogether. However, when faced with the evidence, he was convinced that not only was Christianity true, but that it was based on a relationship worth devoting his life to. This led to the birth of the Josh McDowell Ministry. Since 1961, Josh has delivered more than 27,000 talks to over 25 million people in 125 countries. He is the author or co-author of 150 books, including More Than a Carpenter and Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Recognized by World Magazine as one of the top 40 books of the 20th century. Over the years, Josh has consistently addressed hard topics such as the issue of truth, reliability of scripture, moral integrity, and relationships. Today, Josh continues to write and speak to audiences across the globe. Despite his work, Josh will tell anyone that his greatest joys and pleasures come from his family. He and his wife Dottie have been married 45 years. They have four children and 10 grandchildren. Please welcome Josh McDowell. Hello. Now, there we go. There we go. This is such a young audience, I thought everybody could hear me. <laughs> but this is one of the nicest tables and chairs I've ever seen in a church. And then I realized some family brought it in today because I said, I like to sit down with a table. And so I thank you for that. That's cool. Second, she's one of the best guitarists I've ever seen. I mean, uh, I, I was watching her one time. Her hand went so fast, it just looked like a blur. And yet it was all well done. I, I commend that. Um, also, I live in Southern California where every day, almost every day is like today and yesterday. Beautiful weather, dry, everything. But we don't have the scenery that you have. Just driving up here from Bozeman yesterday, it was inspiring. I'm, I literally, I mean, it was inspiring. Especially seeing one had brown cows all over the hill. And then we got further, they had black cows. And I thought, I'd like to own a cattle on a thousand hills, by gummy. But uh, it's good being here. Um, and uh, this morning, I want to I challenge your thinking. Uh, I like people to use their brains, their minds, etc. And I'm going to start out by telling a story and then go into what I feel is a few mind-blowing facts uh, about the scriptures and about Christ. The, um, I want to speak on the deity of Christ. Uh, one reason is because for years I mocked it. I thought it was the stupidest, most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard, that God became man, his name was Jesus. Come on, get real. Uh, and so I mocked him for so many years, then I became one of them. And uh, so I love speaking on the deity of Christ. That and the resurrection were the two things that I just, as a non-believer, I just hammered home. Come on, when you're dead, you're dead. But I found out that's not always true. But in Galatians 4, 4 it says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That phrase, in the fullness of time, could be translated from the Greek. When every exact detail had been fulfilled, God sent forth his son. 
I believe that was a reference to over the 330-some prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. And I think every exact detail were all those prophecies, every single one of them had to be fulfilled before Christ could be revealed. And then in Luke 24, it says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. I believe it's those 333s, if you want to be specific, prophecies in the Old Testament about who the Messiah would be in the future. And then in Acts 17, it says, and according to Paul's customs, in other words, Paul did this all the time. He went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. Explaining, giving evidence. I really believe in the context and everything, it's a reference to the prophecies, that and the resurrection. From the time these prophecies were made in the birth of Christ was 500 year gap from 500 BC with the closing of the prophecies and the coming of Christ, 500 years. Now, I've, most of my life I've lectured in universities. Um, that's been my life. And one reason I like it, it's the easiest place in the world to lecture about Jesus. You know why? There's such ignorance. No, I'm serious. The university is the most ignorant area in the world when it comes to Christ and the scriptures. And that's why it's so easy uh, to lecture there. You just want a student or professor to speak up. Uh, because then you have a chance just to explain why they're 1,000% wrong and then document the evidence for Christ. But people say, I don't think it was 500 years. I don't think, I hear this all the time in university. I don't think these prophecies were written down until the time of Christ and they were written down to make it look like he fulfilled them all. Now that sounds pretty good. Not really, but pretty good. Unless you want to think. And some people would rather die than think. Look, the Septuagint. Septuagint is a word that means 70 from the Greek. It was a title given to the Old Testament being translated into Greek. And the reason they named it the Septuagint 70 days, they said that 70 people in 70 cells in 70 days translated the Old Testament. Now, that's not how it happened, but that's the tradition and how they got the name Septuagint or 70. Now, history confirms the Septuagint, which contains all the prophecies, was commenced 250 years before Christ. And nobody will question that. It's documented historically. And so you say, well, it's not a 500-year gap. <laughs> Look, you got the same problem. It's at least a 250-year gap from these prophecies being written down and their fulfillment in Christ. So you got the same problem. Now, I want to go through these prophecies in kind of a unique way. I'm going to start out with a story and then come to the prophecies in the context of a story. Every one of you could share your journey 
one of the things that wherever I go in the world, I sit in a plane and the person next to me, I say, hey, tell me about your spiritual journey. I've never had anyone say no. Because people like to talk about themselves. And they like to talk about their spiritual journey. And then 50% of them about will say, well, what's been your journey? If they don't, I'll say, do you mind if I share mine? And I've never had anyone say no. Because they'd look like an idiot if they did. And uh, so then it would give me a chance to share my journey about coming to Christ. When I went to the university, um, I met a group of students. There were eight students, two professors, and their lives were different. Now, most people are different because they're weird, but these people were different because they seemed to have a genuine, authentic love for each other. Now, you'll find that in a lot of places of the world, but this is what was different. As I kept watching them and everything, because they were attractive, uh, I'm not talking so much physically, but just spiritually in their lives attracted people. And um, they, they not only seemed to have an authentic love and care for each other, but they had that same genuine, authentic love for people outside their group. Now, when I was brought up, that was weird, but I wanted it. With my background and everything, I wanted it. Uh, and the reason I wanted it, when I left for the university, I was bitter, I was hurt, I was ticked off at God, my parents, and a lot of people, especially Christians. I was ticked off. And when I got to the university, there was a small group of people, and their lives were different. And they seemed to have a genuine love. So coming from my background, where I hardly ever saw my father sober, and literally when he wasn't trying to kill my mother, I was trying to kill him. And thank God, I'm glad I didn't. Because back then, I would have been sent to jail for life. Today, you wouldn't be. There'd be extenuating circumstances and all, but not back then. And uh, I wish to God I had not grown up hating my dad. Because I don't care who you are. You grew up hating your dad. There's always consequences in your life. For your entire life. Every day, I pay the consequences of growing up hating my father. But when I saw this group of people, and one that was this really good-looking young lady, I used to think all Christians were ugly. I did. No, I did. I figured if you couldn't make it anywhere else in life, you became a Christian. They were a bunch of losers. Look, I'd met some. After a 10-minute conversation, I felt justified. It's kind of like today. Every Christian I met, oh, they could tell me what I ought to believe, what I ought to believe about Jesus, the Bible, the resurrection, everything. But I couldn't find anyone who could give me any intelligent reason for believing it. And I grew up thinking that's the dumbest thing in the world is to believe something, not even intellectually knowing why in the world you even believe it. And so I would mock them and everything. This one young lady, and man, she was cute. She looked me eye to eye, and she challenged me to do thing, two things. One, to examine the Bible to see if it was true and historically accurate, which I thought was a joke. 
I figured Christians had two brains. One was lost, the other was out looking for it. And it came right down to their beliefs about the Bible. And second, she challenged me to examine the person of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Son of God. Well, I just chuckled at that. But that group of young people just kept challenging me. In fact, they ticked me off. I got so mad, I said, okay, I'll do it. They got all excited, thought they had a convert. But I said, I'm going to do it to refute you, to make a joke of everything you believe. And so I left the university. In the first two years of university, I had made a lot of money. I mean, a lot of money. I had a brand new, um, what do you call it, the Ford Mustang, not Mustang, but the real sporty car. I had everything when I was in college and made a lot of money. And so I took time off from the university, traveled throughout Europe, England, Germany, France, the Middle East, Italy, gathering the information to write a book to make a fool of those Christians on campus. I'd returned to London, England to catch a flight home in one of those old 707 flights uh, from London back to the United States. And uh, I heard about this, this museum library that had a lot of the old manuscripts and scrolls in them. Because I knew if I could show that the old manuscripts and scrolls were not reliable, my case was won against Christianity because our scriptures are based on them. They were scripture. So I went to this small museum, and uh, I kept examining them for about four hours. And then went over and I sat down. And I'll never forget, I leaned back in my chair and right in front of everyone, which was probably three people, Right out loud, I said, right out loud, it's true. It's true. It's true. Now, what I concluded, that there were two things that I could say is true about the Scriptures, especially the New Testament, that what I held in my hand is what was written down has not been changed in 2,000 years. Second, the bigger problem that I had to deal with is this, was what was written down true? Because if what was written down wasn't true, then I could care less that what I have today is what was written down. I'm not dumb. And I concluded that what I have is what was written down. It had never been changed. And second, I'll never forget that night when I concluded it's true. What was written down was true. Jesus did this, and Jesus said that. And then I had to decide, was what he said true? This was a long journey for me. Was what is... What I have is what was written down, and what was written down was true that Jesus said that and did that, but now was what was written down true? It was true that it was written down, but was it true what was written down? And so I set out to refute that, and I couldn't. And that December 19, 1959, at 8.30 at night, at the end of the second year in the university, I got alone with a friend of mine, and I prayed four things that I believe established a relationship with a God who became man. His name was Jesus. I said, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. The most humbling thoughts I ever realized, and only God, the Holy Spirit, I think, could have taught me this, was that if I were the only person alive, Jesus still would have died for me. I was overwhelmed with that. I was overwhelmed with that. Second... I knew the Bible was true, and I knew the Bible said, for all have sinned 
and come short of the glory of God. Now, I knew, I wouldn't have called a sinner, but I knew there were things wrong in my life, and that I was not compatible with the holy, just, righteous nature of God, that's for sure. And uh, so I'll never forget one. I didn't know what it mean to confess your sins. I'd never been in a Bible study or anything or a church. So I, did, I went to a church, but in spite of what the pastor said, I still believed in God. And um, I just said, God, whatever it is, whatever sin is in my life and everything, I confess it. Forgive me. I'm sure glad God knew my heart and not all my understanding of what I was praying. And then third, I knew the Bible said, but to as many as received him, not to as many as uh, went to church, not to as many went to a Bible study, not to as many was sincere, now that, but to as many as received him. Now what in the world did that mean? How would you receive someone in your life? You know what really helped me? Revelation 3.20. I stand the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. I thought, well, that makes sense. That you'd have to open the door. And so I said, Lord, right now I open the door of my heart and life, and I invite you in. And I'll never forget, I said, as my own personal Savior and Lord. And the fourth thing I prayed was just... Just kind of thank you. Nothing happened. No bolt of lightning. I didn't rush out and buy a harp. I didn't rush to get a Bible. Nothing happened. But in about six months to a year, my entire life changed. And this is what really impressed me or hit me. I didn't seek that change. I wasn't looking for that change, you know, and mentally. It just happened. And um, one was my, my father. Um, I hated him. I truly believed he killed my mother or caused her to want to just die. Um, My mother was a very large woman. No, she was huge. She weighed 346 pounds. I wish back then I understood her situation like I understand it now. She had a thyroid problem. Today they have a pill, you take it, you're okay. Back then, if she drank a glass of water, a cup of coffee, she gained weight. She was huge. And... And she knew this about me. I was, I was always very self-conscious and embarrassed to be seen with her. Now, my mother was a great woman. She had to know that. We'd go to Battle Creek shopping for school clothes in August and always be self-conscious to hope none of my friends see me. Isn't that awful? But I was just a kid. And, and, and I, was, I loved my mother, but I was embarrassed to be with my mother. And that caused a tremendous conflict in my life. And my mother knew it. Uh, and so I called up my father. He was in Jackson, Michigan. And I made an appointment to meet with him at a 50s diner. Well, yeah, I was in the 50s in uh, Battle Creek, Michigan. And so we met there. And I walked in, sat down. We greeted each other. 
The waitress took our order and walked away. As I walked away, I went there to tell my dad how much I hated him and that I never wanted to see him again. I said, Dad, the reason I've come here is I want to tell you, I love you. And I froze. I don't know, truly, I don't know who is most surprised, him hearing it or me saying it. That's when I knew something had happened in my life. I was not accustomed to that. I was accustomed to hating those I wanted to hate and loving those I wanted to love and no in between. But all of a sudden I found myself to a person I made a decision of my will to hate and telling them I love you. And I was in a very serious car accident. I was at a train crossing in a small Ford. They don't make them anymore, one of the small Fords. And it was right up to the bar that comes down when the train uh, alert comes. And a car doing 55 miles an hour behind me. I don't know what happened. He had been drinking, never slowed down, hit me right in the back. Pushed me through, broke off the blue, red, and white thing that comes down. And within literally about six inches of a fast-moving train, my life was that close to being over. And um, that shook me up. And it brought me to the point, saying, God, I want to know you personally. And uh, I said to my dad, I love you, when I wanted to say I hated you. And when I was in a serious car accident, I was in bed. They had me strapped in, my legs and arms strapped in. They had a thing around my head that would cover my thing to hold me because they were so afraid if I moved at all, I could further sever the back of my neck, which had been severely, not completely severed, but right just hanging on. And... um, my father came into my room, and he stood in the doorway. And I couldn't turn my head to look at him. I, I could just flash my eyes. I could see him. And he was crying. I had never seen my father say, express any emotion in his life. And he walked into my room, and I followed him with my eyes, and he walked back and forth on the right side of my bed, probably no more than a minute, but it seemed like an ages. And then he just stopped, leaned over right in front of my head like this. And he said, son, how can you love a father like me? I didn't expect that. I said, dad, six months ago, I hated you. I despised you. I despised everything that you stood for. But I said, I've come to know Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord, and he's come into my life. And he's given me a love for you. And right there, my father said, well, I want to know him too. And right there, now you talk, most people don't have this much joy in a lifetime. Right there, my father prayed with me. I mean, I got, you're laying like this and I'm crying, but I can't get the water. And so all of a sudden, everything was blurred. Like when you look through water, because there's puddles in my eye sockets like this. And I couldn't turn to get the water out. So finally, my father went and got a handkerchief and, and wiped my eyes off. But right there, my father prayed with me. And he only lived 14 months because after 30, 35 years, he was a wino. Two, three bottles of wine every single day. Think what that cost the family. But every day, and it destroyed 30% of his liver, his stomach, half his stomach had to be cut out. And he died 14 months later. And that ticked me off because 
I thought I wasn't son worth staying alive for. That had nothing to do with it. But I just started to have a relationship with the father, and he ups and dies. And I thought, how dumb can you be? Why couldn't he stay alive just for a while? Um, but it changed my life. It changed my life. And uh, ever since then, I've never had a thought that I ever made a wrong decision in trusting Christ as Savior and Lord. But I came to that point in my testimony, how do you know it's true? How do you know it's true? How can I know the Bible is true and historically reliable? Now, I've written many books on that uh, now and documented it all. And how can you really know that Jesus was God himself coming in human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ? How could you know that? I want to share with you just one little piece of evidence that I discovered. And what blows my mind, I've never heard anyone else speak on this. I don't know why. It's one of the most powerful pieces of evidence of the deity of Christ. And I'm sure there's others that have spoken on it, but I've never heard them. I've never seen it on television, on radio. Um, I've never heard them in a church, anything. Um, But I'd like to share it with you. 333 prophecies. All fulfilled in one person, Jesus Christ. These prophecies written down over 500 years before he was born. The Septuagint proves historically documented it was at least 250 years. So if you say it wasn't 500 years, you got the same problem with 250 years. And I looked at these prophecies as God writing an address to identify his son, who he would be. Do you realize your address separates you from what? Is there 7 billion people alive? From your address, even though if it's just box something, something big timber. Are we in big timber? Yeah, big timber, Montana. Uh, I haven't seen any of the big timber yet. But uh, it separates you from 7 billion people alive? I mean... Your house number separates you from every other house on that street. Your street separates you from every other street in that city. That city separates you from every other city in that state. That state separates you from every other state in the Union. And the United States separates you from every other country in the world. Did you ever realize that? Your address, well, God did the same thing with his son. He wrote an address. So there was no deniability who he was, and when he came. So I would like to go through this as God writing an address. Now, I'm probably going to speak maybe a little faster than you've heard most people speak except an auctioneer. But uh, I'm doing it because I don't want you to get so much get the content. You can go to my website, josh.org, and download a complete transcript of it, all the PowerPoint, everything free of about 80 talks that I give. You can download it all free at josh.org. But I want you to get the impact of what God did in bringing his son into the world. In the fullness of time, when every exact detail had been fulfilled, then and only then, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So let's go way back. God says, the first indication you know who my son would be, because he'd be born of the seed of the woman. 
Now, why is that so unique? Because everyone else in the Bible was born of the seed of the man. Now, what's the uniqueness of that? The virgin birth. And then God narrows it down further. Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Napheth. And every nation in the world could be traced back to one of those three individuals. Now God eliminates two-thirds of the nations of the world. Where he says, you can know who my son is because he was not only born of the seed of the woman, but of the lineage of Shem. Now, in the lineage of Shem, there were many family lines. And God eliminated every one except one. And he says, you can know who my son is because he'll be born of the seed of the woman, Shem, and the descendants of Abraham. Out of the lineage of Shem. And then God narrows it down further. Abraham had eight children. Now, most people don't realize that. He had eight children. And now God eliminates seven eights of the descendants of Abraham. Seven eights. When he said, you can tell my son is because he'd be born in the seed of the woman and the descendants of Abraham and the line of Isaac. Now, Isaac had two children, Jacob and Esau. Now God eliminates 50% of the line of Isaac. Do you see the historical probability, incredible probability building up when God says, you can tell who my son is because he'd be born in the seed of the woman and the descendants of Abraham, the line of Isaac, and the line of Jacob. Now, Jacob had 12 children, out of which developed the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, God eliminates 11 twelfths of the tribes of Israel. When he says, you can tell who my son is, because he'd be born of the seed of the woman, and he sent us very around, line of Jacob, and of the tribe of Judah. Now, in the tribe of Judah, there were many family lines, and God narrows it down to one family line. He eliminates all the others. When he says, you can tell who my son is, use your brain. He'll be born of the seed of the woman, and he sent us very line of Jacob, tribe of Judah, and of the family of Jesse. Now, Jesse had eight children. And now God eliminates seven-eighths of the family line of Jesse. When he says, you can tell who my child is, because he'll be born of the seed of the woman, lineage of sin, the sons of Abraham, line of Ion, line of Jacob, tribe of Judah, family of Jesse, and of the house of David. Then we go down to Psalm 22, about 1012 B.C. God says, you can tell who my son is, because... He'll be born of the seed of the woman, Lean Shen, Sen, Abraham, Lion of Isaac, Lion of Jacob, Tribe of Judah, family, just the house of David. He'll be crucified, and he'll be crucified. His hands and his feet will be nailed against the cross. You say, come on, Josh, thousands of people are crucified. But do you realize that method of crucifixion of nailing to the cross was not put into 800 years after the prophecy? Most people don't realize that. An 800-year gap from the time it'd be prophesied and when that type of crucifixion took place. And then God narrows it down further. When he says, you can tell who my son is because he'd be born of a woman. Let me go back here. <laughs> he'll be born of the woman, the lineage of Shem, the sons of Abraham, the line of Isaac, Jacob, tribe of Judah, family, Jesse, house of David. He'll be crucified, betrayed by a friend, for 30 pieces, not $29.99, not $31.80, but 30 pieces of silver, not gold, not platinum. It'll be thrown on the floor, not placed on the table. It'll be in the temple. And then it even says it'd be used to buy a burial plot. And then God narrows it down further. He says, you can tell who my son is. Because when every exact detail is fulfilled, he'll be born in the seed of the woman, and he sends the of Abraham, line of Isaac, line of Jacob, tribe of Judah, family of Jesse, house of David, betrayed by a friend, 30 pieces of silver thrown on the floor, in the temple used to buy a burial plot, and he'll be born 
in that little city of Bethlehem of Freda. He eliminates every city in the world except for one. And whenever I share this in a classroom in the university, I love it. Because always a professor student will say, uh, I think it's all a coincidence. <laughs> and usually before they say that. Well, if God was that smart... It seems like he could tell you when it would happen. He did. He did. God says, you know who my son is. Because he'd be born to see the woman. Lean, Sam, the son of Abraham, line of line, Jacob, Job, Job, family, Jesse, house of David, be crucified, betrayed by a friend, 30 pieces of silver, thrown on the floor in the temple, and abused by a botter's fly. And it would take place in the city of Bethlehem, Ephrata, all before the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. When was the temple destroyed? Anyone? 70 A.D. It's all a coincidence. Really. That would take more faith in believing it. Is it all a coincidence? What is a, using the modern science of probability? And in my book, this is all documented. Evidence that man's a verdict. Probability of just eight of these prophecies, not 333, just eight of these prophecies written down before a person was born and fulfilled in his life would be one times one in every 10 to the 17th power. Where's my PowerPoint? What? We didn't send it to you? She told me she had. Oh, this breaks my heart. All of this is on PowerPoint with descriptions and graphics. I'm sorry. Uh, you need to have a good imagination. And I hear in Montana you do. But uh, one, in every, one in every times 10 to the 17th power would be 10 to 17 zeros. Now, if you understand that, you understand our national debt. <laughs> now, how, how big is 10 to the 17th power? would take the state of Texas. I spent a wonderful week there one night. Uh, I was in Scotland, and this Texan was bragging about how big Texas was. He said, Texas is so big. You can get in a train travel for seven days, and you're still in Texas. And the Scottishman said, oh, mister, I know what you mean. We have the same problem with our trains. But uh, you could probably say that in Montana from one end to the other. But you take the entire state of Texas, two feet deep of silver dollars. The entire state. Then take one silver dollar, put a red check on it, and then throw it in and mix up, use bulldozers if you want, mix up the entire state. And then take, in El Paso, blindfold a man or woman. And let them start wading through two feet deep of silver dollars for one minute, five minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, a day, a week, or two weeks, a month, or a year. Just wading through it. And then just stops randomly. And completely blindfolded, reaches down and pick up a silver dollar. And to take off his mask and, and the probability that in his first pick, the entire state of Texas, two feet deep of silver dollars, he would pick the check silver dollar 
is the same probability of just eight of these prophecies being fulfilled in one person? One in 10 to the 17th power. Do you know what it is for 48? Which is what, about one-sixth of the prophecies? It would be one, and then one times 10 to the 157th power. Of just 48 of these prophecies, a probability that they could be written down before a person was born and fulfilled in their life would be 10 with 157 zeros. Now, we don't understand that one. But the greatest prophecy of all, I've not quoted. In Ezekiel, it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. I'm a walking, and many of you are, I'm a walking example of that prophecy. I went to my father, called him up to meet, And when I said to my father, I love you, as I shared earlier, that's when I knew God had done something in my life. My father only lived 14 months. But I got to tell you, I tell my kids and my grandkids, I got four kids and 11 grandkids, and they're not cheap. But I told my kids and my grandkids, anything positive you're getting out of Papa Josh comes from that 14 months I knew my father as a sober father. What I gained in that 14 months is the good things that you're getting out of my life as a grandfather and a father. I, when I went off to college, one reason I was so mad, hurt, I was injured, ticked off, is that from 6 to 13 years of age, every week, two, three times a week, I was homosexually raped by a man by the name of Wayne Bailey. When I was six years old, he was hired to be a cook and a housekeeper on the farm to free my mother up to work the fields. And every time my mother went downtown shopping or went out to the fields to work, he would homosexually rape me. And I'll never forget going into the kitchen. I was nine years old. I stood behind my mother. She was doing the dishes, looking out the window. And I told her what was happening to me. And she turned around. Oh, was she mad at me? She started shaking her finger at me. said, young man, I did not raise you to be a liar. She made me go out in the backyard where we had this huge willow tree, break off a big switch, tear the leaves off of it, go in and give it to her and take my shirt off. And for 30 minutes, she whipped me until it hurt so bad I started screaming, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That probably did more damage in my life to this day than being sexually abused. Because I'll never forget it. I was so scared. I had no, who else do you turn to? Who else? 
in a little small town, nobody would believe you. Today they would, back then they wouldn't. And so I grew up hiding that secret in my life. And I grew up thinking, no woman would ever want me. I'm damaged goods. And then I met my wife. Oh my gosh. She's God in human flesh almost, not quite. Uh, I never knew a woman could love a man so unconditionally. What time am I supposed to close? Right now? Another hour? Okay. I'll finish. But my father came to Christ. I not only came to Christ, but God literally has done a marvelous work in my life. He will cause all things to work together for the good. And you know, it wasn't good being homosexually raped for seven years. But God has worked at the good because I cannot believe how many people God has allowed me to help who have been sexually abused over the years. Literally hundreds and hundreds. So it wasn't good what happened to me. But God turned it to the good. And I'm thankful for that. So I came to one conclusion. Jesus is. He is the Son of God. The Bible is not only true, it's historically reliable and accurate. And Jesus can change lives. And I learned that Christianity is not a religion. Religious men and women trying to work their way to God through good works, religious ritual, you know. If I'm a good person and my good works outweigh my bad works, then God will accept me. Hogwash. Now, you ought to understand that in Montana. Uh, Hogwash. Christianity is a relationship. I never knew that. It's not men and women trying to work their way to God. You can't do that. It's God coming to us offering us a relationship with him through Jesus Christ, his son. And so um, I challenge you to not just consider this, but most of you here probably are believers. Do you realize every day you bump into people like me? We're on the outside. I looked great. I mean, I was a star in sports, everything. On the inside, I was an emotional wreck. And nobody saw it. Every day you pass by people just like me. Don't take anyone for granted. Always ask, what's their spiritual journey? If they don't ask you to share yours, share yours. And they will listen to you. If you don't know Christ, if you never started this spiritual journey, well, get real. It's your decision. But all I know is, Every one of us is going to die. Every one of us is going to appear in the judgment seat. And when Christ says, what right do you have to enter my heaven? The answer sure can't be, well, I've been a good person. I went to church my life. I prayed all the time and everything. No. The only answer Christ can accept is because I trusted you as my personal Savior and Lord. Thank you for giving me the privilege of being here this morning. And I enjoyed, one of the things I liked about your pastor, we sat in the other room, chatted for a while, and he gave me some of the, coffee's fairly good. And uh, I probably shouldn't say that, but it's fairly good. And um, he bragged about you all. 
You don't realize what that meant to me when you did that. He was telling about you and the type of people you are and everything. And I thought, I wish every pastor could talk about his congregation the way your pastor talked about you. It made my day. It was worth coming here just to sit in there those few minutes. And all this has just been putting or icing on the cake. Thank you so much. God bless. Hey, thanks. Um, Did I end that with the way you wanted me to end it, the way you taught me? (laughs) Okay, don't make me a liar, okay? (laughs) Uh, Love you. It's good for us to be together this morning. Um, If you haven't committed your life to Christ, it's just say yes. Say, I'm sorry, Lord, for my sin. Forgive me. And yes, I'll follow you. And uh, if you want to talk to Josh, he can be up here in front. Hey, I will be. I guess so. Um, he'll be somewhere in the building. <laughs> There's three times the amount of food as what they had last week, and that means you're invited next door. I'll uh, be at the food. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it's good for us to be together. Let me pray and close this. Father and Lord God, you're so good and you're so gracious, Lord. Lord, we live in a very broken world, but you're the God who fixes things. And you fix people. Oh, you fix right. us. And so, Lord, I just pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, that we just feel you work in our lives, Lord. You are the one who mends together that which has been broken. And, Lord, that's us. That's me. And so, Father, I pray that you would just be that mender in our lives, Lord, that first it would be restoring us to you. And then, Lord, every day living in that restored way where we are the light of Christ in a very broken world. And so, Lord, go before us today. Uh, May our whole day just be an act of worship. And so, Lord, we give you this day in the name of Jesus. Amen.